If we're limited in terms of the capacity to use those butt muscles because of tightness around the front of the hip, that's not only going to cause problems locally to the hip, that can also have those knock-on effects. That Triathlon Show, episode 45. Hello, what's up everybody? Welcome to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. As always, I'm your host Michael and on today's episode we're talking about injuries and especially overuse injuries from running. If you're anything like the majority of triathletes then you have probably had some sort of running injury or even just some overuse niggle. And in today's episode, you'll learn more about that. Some things that we talk about is how overuse injuries are often the result of dysfunctional movement patterns. And we go into what the most common examples of such dysfunctional movement patterns are, in particular as it pertains to running. And you'll also get a framework for a short 15-minute maintenance routine that you can use as a prehab routine to prevent those injuries from coming up and and it will contain all the essential elements for avoiding these kinds of dysfunctional movement patterns including mobility activation stabilization and strengthening exercises that will keep you running and training injury free provided of course that you follow a sensible training schedule and don't do too much too soon and so on and so forth and my guest today is, uh, I'm very happy to announce, uh, James Dunn of Kinetic Revolution. Uh, he's a sports rehab therapist and a running coach and works with um, mostly runners at this point, but, but also a lot of triathletes and sprinters, footballers, rugby players and hockey players. And he is himself actually previously has been a professional rugby rugby player, but has transitioned more and more into the endurance world and running especially. He's a great expert on the subject, and as I mentioned in the interview, whenever somebody asks me about some sort of niggle or injury, or if I myself have a niggle or injury, the first place that I turn to is uh, Kinetic Revolution, James' website, or his YouTube channel. And when I was out with my uh, patellofemoral pain syndrome for nine months from running just before I started doing triathlons, James' resources were part of my a big part of my rehab program that got me back running again and and i have been running injury free since then and uh part of james james resources or his learnings essentially the or his teachings i should say are still to this day part of my prehab routines so uh, i'm very happy to welcome my friend james dunn to the show and we have a lot of ground to cover so let's just jump right into the interview all right, so on today's interview on That Triathlon Show, I'm happy to welcome my friend James Dunn from Kinetic Revolution. Welcome, James. Thank you very much, and thank you for the invitation. Yeah, it's been we've been actually been talking about this for for quite some time, but uh, it had just never happened until until now. Just recently, I happened to see that you are actually reviving your own podcast, and had to reply to that email to to get you on mine. So so it was uh, a good coincidence that you're reviving that because that brought the thing back to to my memory. Yeah, I laughed when I saw your email come back in response to the uh, the email that I sent out about the podcast, and I thought it's uh, it's great because we haven't hooked up in a while while actually it's time that we uh, yeah it's time that we spoke but no the web the um the podcast at our end it's been kind of lying dormant for i don't know too long two years at least um, we've got a fair few episodes in the backlog there but uh yeah i just kind of put it to one side so now this is a new focus getting out there and uh, making the most of uh, facebook live to actually try and uh, then make a podcast yeah, I'm very much looking forward to to experiencing that uh, Facebook Live kind of podcast. And of course, that will be linked up in the show notes for the listeners as well. So uh, let's talk a bit about your background first. You are a sports rehab therapist and a running coach. And uh, you write on your website that you have a passion for identifying and correcting dysfunctional movement patterns that cause overuse injuries or impair efficiency in endurance athletes. So what does this really mean in practice? What 
what do you do in your job? Okay, so that that all sounds very kind of flowery and uh, and kind of high highfalutin. But in reality, what it is is helping athletes overcome their injuries, and particularly when we're talking about endurance athletes, it's over overcoming overuse injuries. And when it comes to overuse injuries. The, the, the big kind of way of explaining, if you like, what an overuse injury really boils down to, it's that there's some sort of biomechanical overload that has come about as a result of a movement pattern that places undue amount of stress or strain upon a certain tissue, a movement pattern that is in some way starting to um, therefore create the, you know, the situation where pain occurs, where injury occurs, and then that is exacerbated by training volume. So obviously we all want to train for whatever event we've signed up for, whether that's a marathon, whether that's an Ironman, whether that's your first sprint try. And if there is some sort of movement pattern somewhere along the lines, which is as you start to increase the amount of running you're getting done, um, starting to, let's say, pick on your patellofemoral joint, getting to pick on your knee, then all of a sudden that can start to become a problem, start resulting in pain. And it's my job to help identify what those underlying movement patterns are, what it is that's starting to actually result in the the increased amount of stress and strain on that particular tissue and from there help you with on one hand strengthening and uh, mobilizing and stabilizing all the important areas around that joint or around that tissue and on the other hand help you from a technique perspective to try and actually improve how you're moving how you're running so that you can get back into your training and overcome the injury in the first place and stop the injury becoming a a recurring problem and I think we we both know athletes who unfortunately seem to be stuck on this if you excuse the pun treadmill of you know overuse injuries that seem to come back and uh, and haunt them so classic examples plantar fasciitis Achilles tendinopathy those kinds of things where they do their rehab um, so that they've rested for a while, they've strengthened, they've perhaps had been having some regular soft tissue work, and they've reintroduced running into their training. But because they haven't necessarily got to the bottom of the actual movement pattern, the, the technique aspect, the biomechanical aspect that has dictated why the given tissue, let's say the Achilles, was overloaded, um, as they start getting back into their running volume, all of a sudden they get to a kind of a critical point where, guess what, that same overload either begins to raise its head and cause problems again or through compensation, which is often a problem, and the way we move differently to accommodate pain and those compensations sometimes tend to hang around, we end up with a secondary injury elsewhere. So basically it's helping athletes move better and overcome their injuries. Okay, so let's sum that whole thing up for the listeners. So essentially you have a dysfunctional movement pattern and uh, that leads to undue stress on a tissue or a joint and uh, that can then lead to when you combine that with the volume of training to getting an overuse injury was and then and you also have the the mobility stabilization and strength factor that come into play but that dysfunctional movement can and should be corrected also with correct form and technique is that about right absolutely and and the big thing that always leads to a lot of frustration and sometimes um, you know, I, I meet runners who have been passed from you know one specialist to another so from a, one physio to another or osteopath or whoever who have been dealing with an injury a chronic injury for quite some time and running is the main exacerbating factor for the injury or the you know the the reason why the injury came on in the first place yet nobody has ever actually looked at them run nobody has ever actually said let's leave this treatment room and let's go out into the car park let's go out into the gym and get you on the treadmill although i would prefer that people look to people outside because that's kind of more real running on a treadmill is different and and see what it is you're doing when you're running that's starting to lean, lead to perhaps your knee pain or your calf pain or your back pain or you know why is your injury to do with your running why is it linked to your running without looking at somebody run it's impossible to really um, be able to get to the bottom of that and unfortunately so many runners go through the whole treatment process without anybody actually looking at them run yeah that's uh, really unfortunate and i have had suffered from from uh, patellar tendonitis myself for a long time was out nine months from running and that was when i turned to triathlon and fortunately i had a physiotherapist that that did look at me run on the treadmill and and helped me a lot so so yeah there's definitely massive value in that but i also had a lot of help from going through your stuff on your website and that is why i now recommend you your resources to to my athletes when they have something something come up in terms of niggles 
You mentioned a few different kinds of uh, of uh, overuse injuries: Achilles tendonitis, uh, hamstring tendinopathy, and and uh, patellofemoral pain syndrome, and and so on. What are the most common ones that you see in runners and uh, endurance athletes? Yeah, so I think kind of starting ground upwards, if you like, we could talk about things like plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendinopathy, recurring calf strains, shin splints, runner's knee. So by that I mean patellofemoral pain, ITB syndrome, patella tendinopathy. A high, uh, high, ha- high hamstring tendinopathies, piriformis syndrome, low back pain. There really is quite a handful of common injuries that, that lie in this overuse kind of category. Very different to if you've stepped off a uh, you know stepped off a curb or or tripped over a tree root and you've sprained your ankle. You know these are more acute and not to do specifically with with training errors or movement dysfunctions or anything like that. But but the list of these kind of common running injuries that I've just described there, they can all be characterized by you know, some sort of overload that's been exacerbated by training volume. That's really what it comes down to. Yeah. And uh, so what's uh, roughly the, the prevalence of these? Do you, do you have any numbers? Yeah. So prevalence, um, it's an interesting one when you start to actually look at the research that's out there. And if you really get into it, you'll see figures between kind of 19, 20% of runners getting injured in a 12-month period up to some papers suggest 90% of runners get injured within a 12-month period. So it really is a huge spread. Talking about it more anecdotally, I always find it amazing when I'm doing running workshops and you've got a kind of group of 20, 30, 60 runners in front of you and you kind of ask the question, how many of you have been injured in the last 18 months, injured in the last year? It is scary how many hands go up. As standard, I I'm never surprised these days if I see two-thirds of the group in front of me who say, yeah, I've, I've had an injury that's interrupted my running, a running injury that's interrupted, interrupted my running over the last uh, 18 months. So those figures, as much as it's a big spread, you know, it's, uh, I would expect it to be kind of on the higher side of that. There was a, um, a meta-analysis done in 2015 which looked at um, incidents of running injuries per 1,000 hours, which I found was quite interesting. It was a different way of kind of talking about it, different way of quantifying it. And I'll actually make sure there's the, the link in the show notes so that you can go back and look at the uh, look at the paper. But basically, they were saying that with runners of a kind of a, a novice category, they, they put it novice runners and recreational runners. Um, there were two slightly different kind of weightings, if you like, in terms of the number of injuries they seem to pick up across a thousand hours. So for your novice runners, it seemed to be uh, an average of 17.8 injuries per 1,000 hours of running, whereas your recreational runners, so slightly more serious yet not sub-elite, it was 7.7 injuries per thousand hours of running. So again, far more to it if you actually get into the, the paper itself. But in terms of a bit of a, a takeaway line, I found that quite interesting. And, and again, correlates with my experience, particularly of, unfortunately, novice runners, so beginners who struggle with injuries like, to take a classic example, shin splints, an example of a, a running injury that's very much thought of as in many respects, an injury that a lot of beginners suffer with because it is so much to do with the loading aspect and the load management aspect and people doing too much too soon. And body weight's a big factor, just like plantar fasciitis. Again, body weight's a big factor. That there seem to be far more injuries in that novice period than as we get more experienced as runners. Not true for everybody, but certainly seems to uh, certainly seems to ring a bell when you see as well how many runners new runners tend to get very frustrated with the process of being a new runner and unfortunately unfortunately give up it's it's very sad to see um and and again just trying to it's part of what we do here at kinetic revolution is try and kind of give the advice in terms of helping people avoid doing too much too soon and allowing them to build up gradually and and hopefully avoid some of the mistakes that many of us myself included and no doubt yourself included have made over the years so it's uh, yeah it's it's one of those that unfortunately I think especially you know, if we think about this from a triathlon point of view, you know, the way in which you know, it's uh, very much of the three disciplines, the big load-bearing discipline and uh, the way in which it's such a, such a repetitive cyclical pattern running gait, you know, especially if you're doing all your running on the road rather than the trail, then all of a sudden it's very easy to see how you know, your body's going to unfortunately find its weak link quite quickly unless you're doing all the appropriate strengthening and stability and mobility exercises. And, and a note on that as well, while you're doing all the, the strength and stability and mobility exercises, you can do all of those to the absolute letter and have the most perfect, perfect 
maintenance routine, rehab routine, prehab routine, injury prevention routine, whatever you want to call it. But if you're making fundamental training errors, that won't save you. You need to make sure that your your training plan is sensible in terms of the progressions and in terms of factoring in adaptation weeks, so weeks where you you reduce the volume to allow your body to come to to adapt um, before you can push again. Um, the biggest the biggest risk factor to running injury is is training error, and that's kind of some, something that I think a lot of people need to to appreciate. Yeah, and that's the biggest risk to improving as a triathlete as well. If you can stay consistent, then that's uh, going to harm your progress. So the best training plan is the one that keeps you injury-free and uh, keeps you training consistently. So uh, so with that said, what are the most common dysfunctional movement patterns that you see that cause these different overuse injuries? So just going to a couple of the most common problems that you see. Yeah, so particularly if we think of it from a, I was going to say if we think of it from a triathlon point of view, but actually this is, this is the same conversation as we'd have for for a recreational, uh, recreational let's say marathon runner point of view. If we think about common movement patterns, common dysfunctional patterns, it's got to be the the kind of the interplay between stride length and stride frequency. So where people find that because they're running with a very low cadence not even a very low cadence, you know, just a cadence that is too low for the given pace. The only way they can adapt to make sure they can still run the given pace is to increase stride length and start to overstride. So let's just clarify a few terms there. Cadence, what I mean by that is stride frequency. Call it stride frequency, call it stride rate, step rate, leg speed. It's a number. It's the number of times your legs turn over per minute. And if we think of the way in which you achieve a given running pace as being the output of an equation, then the equation is stride length times stride frequency. So how long, how much ground are you covering per stride and how many times are you doing that every minute? Now that is that is hopefully in balance where you're for a given pace, let's say you're running five minutes per K, for a given pace you'll be covering enough ground per stride to mean that you can maintain the pace and you'll be turning your legs over um, at a cadence which matches that, which means you don't have to overstride. Now, if your cadence is too low, if your cadence has dropped, so let's say instead of running at 100, what a commonly, commonly quoted figure is 180 strides per minute. Perhaps we can talk about that later. But if we are getting you running at 180 strides per minute and instead of 180 strides per minute, you drop the cadence to 160 strides per minute, which is actually a very common cadence that um, I find, particularly us guys, us male male athletes uh, recreationally often tend to come in and test at, at an easy pace, then if you want to keep running at five minutes per K, your only option, given that your cadence has dropped so much, is to increase the stride length. If you're making less strides in the minute, then those strides are better be longer to mean that you can still maintain that, that, that speed over the ground. The problem is, as you start to make those longer strides, you start putting the foot down in the ground in front of you, more so than is, um, than is efficient, because the further in front of the body that foot hits the ground, the more decelerative ground reaction force your body is going to have to deal with, which essentially is a braking force. It's slowing you down stride by stride, but it's also a lot of impact that comes back at you. Okay, it comes back up through the system. If we think about the major joints from ground upwards, we're thinking about the ankle, the knee, the hips. And it's, uh, it's, it's in very basic terms, it's going to increase the amount of pounding that your body has to deal with per stride. Um, so if we think in triathlon terms about the interplay between stride length and stride frequency, and the way that I often try and talk to triathletes in terms of, uh, in terms of trying to relate it to cycling is that cadence is cadence. Okay, cadence is just a number, it's just a frequency. So whether we're talking about the number of pedal strokes you make in a minute or the number of times you turn your legs over when you're running in a minute, it's just a frequency. And gearing is the same as stride length in this context or the other way around. Stride length can be spoken about the same as gear selection on the bike. So what we see so often with these overstriding runners, those who are landing their feet too far in front of them because they're running with too slow a cadence, it's the same as being a triathlete sitting on the bike and turning your legs over too slowly and selecting too heavy of a gear and making life a lot harder for yourself rather than dialing back a few gears, making life a little bit easier, spinning your legs out. So again, we're talking to triathletes, talking about learning to spin your legs out, making small quick strides instead of the slightly more slower, heavier strides. It's all about trying to get you away from overstriding, getting you landing your feet underneath the, underneath the flexing knee, closer to underneath your center of mass. 
Perfect. So that's uh, cadence and or the balance between cadence and uh, and stride length. Do we have anything else in terms of the most uh, the biggest problems for dysfunctional movement patterns that cause overuse injuries? Yeah, another big one as well, and this is very very pertinent to triathletes because of the time spent on the bike and your corporate triathletes as well. So your corporate Ironman, you know, you're doing perhaps 50, 60 hours um, a week in the office, and then you're doing everything that goes into Ironman training in particular. When I'm talking about there is the amount of time spent on the bike in comparison to talk to uh, to training for sprint and olympic you are spending a lot of time in hip, a very flexed hip position okay so even if your bike fit is set up brilliantly even if you're trying to keep the hip angle as open as you can it's still going to be very much a flexor dom- flexion dominant and a, a quad dominant movement on the bike you're going to be getting into a position where potentially hip extension um, which is the the movement from the the hip of driving the leg backwards if you can imagine when your foot's on the ground when you're running the point where the foot's underneath the hip to the point where you leave the ground the way in which the leg drives back the quality of that might be somewhat um, somewhat undermined by all this time we spend sitting down so all the potential tightness through those hip flexors that comes from that and the weakness through those glutes and hamstrings that comes secondarily to that so what we end up with is a position where because of potentially the the tightness through those hip flexors we um, end up not being able to use our glutes as effectively as the prime mover into extension the prime source of that power into the the push-off phase the kind of the drive phase from the hip so from the point where during this propulsive phase the point where you go from mid stance where the foot's under the hip to the point where as i said earlier you drive that foot off the ground ideally that power should come from the hip and if we can't get the power coming from those glutes because of the tightness in those hip flexors what we end up doing is finding a compensatory way that the body can still produce that propulsion and the compensation in that instance usually comes from having to work harder through those plantar flexor muscles around the ankle and the lower leg, those calf muscles. So we see lots of triathletes who unfortunately struggle with recurring calf strains, Achilles problems, even plantar fasciitis, where as much as you need to do all the appropriate rehab for the injured tissue, you also need to look further up the chain and understand that if the hips aren't moving properly, if we haven't got good quality hip extension, um, good glute activation, and perhaps that's because of tightness at the front of the hip, whether obviously those glutes are at the back of the hip or those butt muscles. If we're limited in terms of the capacity to use those butt muscles because of tightness around the front of the hip, that's not only just that's not only going to cause problems locally to the hip, that can also have those knock-on effects in terms of overusing those muscles in the lower leg, which are really there for force transfer. And um, if we think about the smaller muscles, muscles like tibialis posterior, um, he's there for you know, providing control and stability around the ankle. But that whole complex can start to be overloaded when we don't work effectively from the hip. Yeah, perfect. So that's uh, a good overview of, of that as well. And, and a, a great example for the listeners about why you should make sure that you find the root cause of whatever problems you, you may have. And, and it's not necessarily where you actually have the pain that, that, you, that the root cause, cause of the problem is. So what practical advice should we should we give to to the triathletes that are listening to this what what can you do in your prehab routine first and foremost or is that even where we start or is there something else that we should start with yeah i mean we can get into prehab routines for sure and maintenance routines um i think a great place to start is actually trying to get a a decent screening done a decent assessment done it's important that you have someone who can, especially if you have a history of injuries, and which unfortunately so many of us uh, endurance athletes, um, you know, we do. If you know that you are historically susceptible to certain things before you're about to embark on um, a new training block or something along those lines, then go and find a physical therapist who can take you through a screening and perhaps give you areas to go and work on, which are specific to the imbalances and dysfunctions potentially that they find. It could be a physical therapist. It could be a, uh, a some sort of coach, personal trainer, someone who has a background in ideally exercise therapy so that they can they can think from again a rehab and a prehab perspective having assessed how you move individually now that said i know that's not going to be accessible for everybody um, some people have got fantastic you know sports medicine practices on their on their doorstep other people are in the middle of nowhere and don't have anybody with that sort of um, sort of skill set what you can do especially bearing in mind what I was saying earlier in terms of um, in terms of looking at something as basic as stride length. You know, are you overstriding? Are you landing too far in front of yourself? You can these days use your smartphone. 
you can literally set up a smartphone with um, an app like uh, Huddle, so that's H-U-D-L, or Coach's Eye. And, and to be honest, there are a number of different apps you can use that provide a very similar functionality where you can capture the footage and review the footage in slow motion on your phone. It used to be, and I was actually talking to a client about this today, we were, we were laughing as we were outside capturing some footage. It used to be that I'd need to bring a high-speed camera outside and uh, we'd actually you know, set that up with the tripod and, and you know, capture the footage there to get the frame rate as much as anything else. We're now with you know, iPhone 7 you know, filming through the Huddle app in 240 frames per second. That's all you, all, you know, in terms of tech, that's literally all you need to get decent quality video analysis, video analysis footage at your fingertips. And then you can start to dissect that and get a better idea of what's going on. Um, so as, a, as an absolute basic, as an absolute baseline, we can start thinking about running in the same way that traditionally triathletes think about swimming. Um, plenty of your listeners will have had someone in the pool, uh, you know, alongside them while they're in the pool, taking footage from multiple different angles. Um, from above the water, below the water, etc., etc., to understand your swim stroke a bit better, we can start thinking about thinking about running in the same way um, and use technology that we kind of carry around in our pockets to be able to actually achieve that. So that's that's certainly a good start point. Now, from a um, from a point of view of what can we do to help ourselves when it comes to putting together a decent prehab routine, um, maintenance routine, kind of injury prevention routine. From a triathlon point of view, there are a few key areas that are very similar to an out-and-out runner, so a marathon runner. There are also some key areas which are perhaps a little bit different. So as a kind of a as a kind of a constant, we're going to be wanting to look at things like hip mobility. We're going to be wanting to look at uh, you know, ways in which as I began to describe earlier when we were talking about the hip versus the ankle and the calf injuries, um, the ways in which we can offset the daily patterns that the, the desk and the bike and the sofa and the car and the you know, pretty much everything we as 21st century humans tend to do um, sets us up as. You know, what we can offset time spent sat down by improving the quality of movement around those hips and learning to activate, again, those important gluteal muscles in particular, those muscles that tend to switch off when we do spend too long sat down, that's going to be a great start point. We can also then look further down the chain and think about uh, proprioception and ankle stability. So thinking about running as being the, um, running as obviously being the, the, the big load bearing aspect of triathlon. There is a really interesting um, kind of anecdote, I don't know if that's the right word, but observation that we made. We have a, a training group up here in Norwich that a couple of years ago we did um, some regular Wednesday morning, I think it was, Wednesday morning strength conditioning classes where during the summer we'd actually go out and do the classes out in the uh, out in the park, which was fantastic. Seven o'clock in the morning, you know, nice, beautiful time to be up in the middle of the summer, uh, not too many people around and it was very enjoyable. But as soon as summer ended and winter began to knock on the door we found uh, this before we had the studio i'm currently in um we actually went and found a, an indoor studio to go and do the uh, the same work but in the studio we took our shoes off whereas we were shod outside we were in our trainers outside in the studio doing the same exercises barefoot seemed to give far more comprehensive workout to the ankles and the intrinsic muscles within the foot um, which is a debatable area. Some people do. Some people don't believe that uh, that that's um, uh, that's something that simply by taking your shoes off you you strengthen. Um, I certainly saw firsthand that week after week after week people's balance improved, people's stability improved just by spending a bit of time doing those exercises barefoot. Things like single leg squats, things like arabesques, you know, those kind of exercises that are in the um, uh, that you'll find on the on the Kinetic Revolution website. Um, so yeah, ankle stability, core stability, and, and again, what do we mean by core stability? It, it's not about being able to um, you know, hold a seven-minute plank. It's not about those kinds of things. It's more about actually controlling the position of particularly your lower back, pelvis, and hips whilst the extremities are moving. So if you're looking to, um, if you're looking to Again, from, from a swim point of view, as powerfully as a run point of view, and actually from a bike point of view as well, um, the power that we're looking to create, whether it's swimming-wise with 
the upper body or whether it's we're looking to get a good solid push off as we're, we're running um, or we're looking to get good forms transfer between lower body and upper body and create this nice stable base as we're cycling the stable base is the most important part of that whole conversation and creating good quality control of movement through that kind of lumbro-pelvic hip region um, is something that, again, more people could spend working a little bit more time on and it would benefit all three disciplines. Shoulder health for triathletes is a really important one as well. So, you know, obviously time spent in the pool is going to suddenly become problematic if you've given yourself an impingement problem through your shoulder or a rotator cuff problem in your shoulder um, because of poor <clears throat> poor thoracic mo- uh, mobility. So mobility of the kind of the mid and upper spine. So there's plenty of work, again, that fits alongside the whole conversation I was having about um, spending too much time sat down. If you find yourself kind of curled forwards over your desk as you're sitting down, perhaps you're, as you're even listening to this, we need to work on getting you into a position where you're able to display good quality um, thoracic mobility, good quality thoracic extension and rotation so that you can actually move in terms of the shoulder girdle. So not just the the way in which the arm interfaces with the torso, but also the, the actual scapula, the shoulder blade. He needs to be able to move around the rib cage. And if he can't move well around the rib cage because the upper and mid back is limiting is limited in its range of motion, then all of a sudden it's going to put more demand on the shoulder. So Foam rolling the mid-back for shoulder health is super important. Rotator cuff exercises, super important. So great um, uh, um, resistance band work you can do there. Um, And I mentioned, as I mentioned there, foam rolling in general from a recovery point of view. Calves, anything around the hips, quads, hamstrings, super, super helpful as a recovery tool for us uh, recreational athletes. So uh, let's say that you are completely healthy at the moment, but uh, you want to you don't you're, you're not doing any maintenance routines. What should you do? Like just as a very general guideline, how how many of these maintenance sessions should you do, and what what should they consist of in terms of core strength and foam rolling and so on? If you can give us any any sort of indication in that direction, yeah, absolutely. And, and people will give you different advice on this, but I am a big fan of little and often. You know, there will be people who are in a good routine of going to the gym perhaps twice a week for an hour, 90 minutes, um, and and that's a, a routine that's working for them. But I like to be practical and find that from a, a point of view of actually fitting the routine in around training for, and let's face it, if you're training for a marathon, that's tough enough, let alone training for three disciplines. If you're training to swim, bike, and run, and all the logistics that go around that, it's far more likely that I will be able to get an athlete, get a triathlete to say yes to doing three or four 15-minute workouts in the week instead of saying I need you to change your whole routine and actually find time to go to the gym and, uh, and, and do that perhaps twice a week. So with the whole kind of idea of you know short and sweet workouts, short and achievable workouts, I would definitely prioritize exercises like um well let's let's not even talk yet about about specific exercises let's talk about a balance between different types of exercises you can get within a routine so if you're putting together a routine that's going to take me 15 minutes and i can do you know these i can have three of these routines across a week i want to get some mobility work for sure and some of that might be working on a foam roller some of that might be more stretch based i want to get some activation work and i want to get some strengthening work in there as well so from a mobility point of view there's all sorts we can do from as i mentioned earlier some regular calf foam rolling some foam rolling and tennis ball work around the hips to start to let's say if you're struggling historically you've struggled with uh, piriformis syndrome we can get you spending a couple of minutes each you know, each time you, you come to do these sessions just starting to dig into that whole kind of deeper gluteal region with a tennis ball to start to kind of work on any trigger points that might be there. We can then move on and start to do a little bit of glute activation work. I think we'll probably later on start moving on to talking about things like resistance bands. So I'm a big fan of resistance bands as a, a really practical and really versatile tool so some resistance band activation work for your glutes perhaps it's a a bridge variation would be fantastic so lying on your back in a classic kind of bridge position but with a band around your knees pulling the band apart and holding for five to ten seconds you know ten times 
five or ten seconds of that would be a great place to start with that. Again, the video to that I can make sure that you've uh, you've got Michael and you can uh, can link up in the show notes so that people can visualise what I'm talking about because it's very hard to explain. And then from there you can move on and you can start doing perhaps a little bit more in terms of strengthening work. So if we're looking at exercises like either a split squat. And again, in terms of big bang for the buck exercises from a running perspective, a split squat or call it a static lunge, if you like, is a fantastic exercise because not only does it start to isolate out left leg versus right leg in comparison to the symmetry of a a normal kind of air squat, you know, where you're just standing bilaterally, just dealing with body weight with your feet in parallel where you're balancing your body weight right versus left this actually starts to if you're le- if you're left foot forward you're going to be putting more of an emphasis uh, more of an emphasis on that left hand side and as you work down into that split squat you're actually working on the separation between the extending hip and the flexing hip so you're really starting to work in opposite directions between those two hips and start to build a bit of strength into the fact that you're also building str- uh, building stride length starting to open up those hips a little bit more working again unilaterally and doing that you'll be working particularly quads and glutes on that standing leg and uh, from a strengthening point of view and on the rear leg you're going to be getting a bit more in terms of an anterior hip and uh, anterior thigh kind of mobilization so again quads and hip flexors going to be getting a good bit of mobilization there and that can be built into something like a a romanian uh, no sorry a bulgarian split squat Um, or it could be built into even onwards from there you can get more into your kind of splits your single leg squat variations and again, once you have single leg squat variations, there are all sorts of different variations there. So I'm, I began to talk about um, Romanian deadlifts. Again, single leg Romanian deadlifts, very good hamstring orientated exercise. Another good way of beginning to combine two different types of exercise. So we've got an exercise which is very kind of hamstring and glute orientated, yet we're doing it in a single leg position. So it's like double win. You know, we're practicing single leg stability and we're working on strengthening the posterior chain so the muscles at the the back side of the body which from our running point of view is super important because from a a triathlon perspective as we're spending time on the bike we know that that's going to be very quads heavy what we don't want to do is suddenly find that as we're running we're relying on our quads because we're quite weak for our glutes and hamstrings and the problem there being that our quads are already tired off the bike we need good strong glutes and hamstrings to hold us upright as we're running and to allow us to get this good strong so I mean good posterior chain to hold us upright as we're running. So the posterior chain really goes from top to bottom up the back the back side of the body there. But from a glutes and hamstrings point of view, which is a big component part of the posterior chain, that's going to really help us in terms of providing that good strong push off as we're running. And then from a gluteal point of view, obviously the stability as well. And then from a, a core perspective, I am I said earlier that you know, it's not just about being able to do a, a seven minute plank. That's not me saying planks are bad. I just would much rather have you do some sort of dynamic planking exercise rather than just holding a static position for time. So I'm far more interested in getting you doing something like a a, a side plank with a leg raise or getting you doing a plank, uh, so a reverse plank with alternate leg raise or a side plank with a kind of a running man action with that top leg. You know, those sorts of things where you have to actually control movement whilst you're in that very challenging plank-like position. That's certainly a real challenge. And from a triathlon point of view, um, it's great to actually begin to put a bit of load through the upper body because obviously, you know, depending on, you know, regardless of kind of riding style, you know, it's far more of upper body challenge than just running alone certainly yeah wow that's amazing we have a complete routine here so nobody has any excuse not to not to start implementing this and uh, we'll make sure to to have everything in the show notes and and maybe you can help me out with some some links because you probably have a lot of those already yeah. on your youtube channel or, or similar so that people can get a get have a good look at how to do those different exercises yeah well, um, why don't we why don't we do one step further than that why don't we put together just a couple of example routines that people can just um you know, download from the show notes and they can have that, absolutely as a, as a resource. yeah absolutely perfect let's do that we're quickly coming up on time um uh, i could talk for a long time still but but i know that some listeners have 
want to keep it a bit shorter in the, that 45 minute range this episode so that's what i'm trying to do even though i not, don't always succeed but so i'll let you take the mic from here and i know you want to talk about resistance band and if there's anything else that you want to talk about feel free let's uh but let's try to wrap it up pretty soon here and i also have my rapid fire questions for you so so let's keep it to the most important things that you still want to talk about james yeah um okay so you mentioned resistance bands we'll quickly cover that off a lot of people kind of ask me in terms of what the the kind of most important most important tool if you like um that i get people to make sure they always have in their home gym or in their their suitcase or what have you i just find resistance bands are super versatile uh it's not that us runners and triathletes need to start lifting heavy weights that said there is a definite time of year a definite time of the season where there is huge value to spending six weeks eight weeks doing some you know some real heavy resistance work to build a, a foundational kind of level of strength um, that's something that needs to be supervised and it's not something that you know you need to just get off YouTube um, I'd always rather you guys work with a trainer or something like that to be able to 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 make sure technique is spot on when I start saying to you you know lift we need you doing squats five 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 sets of five as heavy as you can those sorts of things you need to make sure technique is spot on but when beginning to add a little bit of resistance to some of the exercises we do, resistance bands are just so versatile there's so much you can do with them um it's well worth well worth investing if you haven't already definitely um the big thing i wanted to cover off though was uh, about rehab from injuries general and general guidelines to those um and that as much as for whatever your individual injury might be whether it's plantar fasciitis shin splints high hamstring tendinopathy piriformis syndrome whatever it is you need to see a physio okay dr google can be a very terrifying person in the first place. You know, he's going to tell you you're going to die probably quite quickly. Um, but he is also not going to be able to be very specific about your um, your real needs from a rehab point of view. You need someone who can look at you, assess you, and be able to tell you what you specifically need to do from a rehab perspective. Now, once you are onto a good rehab plan, the most critical place to get it right first time is in your return to running phase. As you get back into running, there are three, just like with everything else we do from a training plan point of view, there are three main components, three main variables that we're dealing with, and that's volume, frequency, and intensity. And that is the order that we bring back your running in a return to run program. So, and again, there's a return to run program that I can um, make sure is linked in the in the show notes here, but. I get people running to begin with just to gradually increase volume and it starts very, very low. It starts very low. Starts at one minute run, one minute walk, times 10, go home. That's first session, done. And you're doing that in the first week, three times in, on non-consecutive days. And, and that's really important. You don't want to run back-to-back days at this point. You need to give your body time to adapt as the tissues that's been in the tissue that has been injured is beginning to again get stronger. Sorry to interject here, but how long of an injury are we talking about here when you need to get back gradually like this? If it's just a couple of days off with a niggle, I guess that, that this yeah. doesn't really I'm talking, hold true. But. Yeah, no, no, I completely agree. And this is a really important caveat to put on. I'm talking about something where you've been away from running for, let's say, six weeks. Um, or you've, you've tried to get back into running um, once and failed already. Um, and you've had to have a little bit of a longer period off. Um, or had to repeat the the the, um, the layoff from running, and you need this time to really take it as a gentle gentle return back. Now, you can certainly speed up the process if it's been you know I need to take a, a week off, two weeks off. It's just not going to be a, it's not going to be a twelve week return to running program by any means. Um, but the principle would still be the same. You know, it, it would be. To begin with, if you've taken a couple of, um, if you've taken a week off, for example, the first run back is still going to be low volume, easy pace, very gentle on the body. Tick that box. Next run, we build the volume. Again, tick that box. Then, if you're used to running back to back days in the week, so you're used to perhaps running, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, I would make sure that to begin with, we don't do back to back days. Okay, we, we make sure there's time to adapt, time to recover in between. But then the next thing we do factor in, whilst we're keeping the running easy, is we begin to factor in back-to-back days to see if you can handle that load back-to-back. 
Then once you tick that box and you get to a point where you can actually you know, say that, yes, volume is increasing and I have no problem. Frequency, I've gone from doing three, uh, from doing you know, two runs per week to three runs per week or three runs per week to four runs per week. Once you've got a couple of those weeks ticked, that's where I'd go to intensity. And that's where I'd say once I've got those first two right, that's where I bring in tempo work. That's where I bring in interval work. That's where I bring in hill work. Um, because the intensity works going to be just more uh, stress on the body, basically, and stress on the injured tissue in the first place. Now, this might be a process, as you rightly say, that we, we, we get done over three weeks. So you've taken two weeks off and you've been careful. Let's just say you've been careful for three weeks as you build back in. And that's the order you build things back in. And then you're full training. Everything's good. We're good to go. If you've been off for six, eight, 12 weeks with a real nasty stress fracture or something like that, then that's where we say, yeah, you know what, let's get this right first time. Let's say perhaps, perhaps, and perhaps I don't know, perhaps I don't know, you might be able to get back to running in six weeks, but let's actually do this gradually over 12 weeks and make sure that we get this right the first time. We don't give you another stress fracture by trying to rush you back too quickly. Um, and we, we take the, the longer term approach. Um, again, different people will have different, different, uh, speeds on this different people get through this at different paces but in terms of being conservative and sensible which isn't always fun um that's that's the conversation i would have with people yeah it's not always fun but for most people in most cases you might there might be exceptions let's say that you have qualified for for the ironman world championships or something then you might take the speedy approach it might be worth the risk but but in most cases you you won't have have that uh, that need you you feel that you have it and i feel that i have it but yeah. but but you really don't so it's uh that's where it's uh, great to have a have a coach or, or an expert an outside expert like a physio that can tell you tell you what to do look i've i my background before i even thought i would be the running guy um my background is in rugby and i played rugby at a professional level for a number of years i understand the pressures of of um performing when your body perhaps probably shouldn't um you know there's a big game it's exactly the same in the in your head as there's a big race and you just have to have a very open and frank conversation about risks rewards um you know what's what's the worst case scenario is that worth you know what and what is what are the chances of the worst case scenario and is that worth the potential of the best case scenario um and every every case is different definitely but i understand for sure yeah all right so let's move on to the rapid fire questions and start with what's your favorite book blog or resource related to running endurance sports triathlon or anything along these lines you know i spent a little bit of time thinking about this and um, there's obviously all sorts out there and i just thought what's the resource that i have used probably the most in the last six weeks and i've been writing a lot of uh, a lot of marathon plans for people and um I'm actually going to go to an online resource, an online calculator, so a V-dot calculator, Jack Daniel's V-dot calculator, which I have been pointing a lot of people towards in terms of getting training paces under control, um, because a lot of people fall into that mistake, into that uh, mistaken place where they are running their easy runs too hard uh, and making themselves too tired for their their quality sessions, um, and actually just pointing out to them that look, here's some some objective data that you can actually look at based on recent race performances to look at what your easy pace running should be um, and training paces, you know, interval for, you know, for various different distance intervals and things like that, what your tempo pace should be. So yeah, pointing people towards that um, certainly tends to open a, few eye, uh, open a few eyes quite wide where they suddenly realize that, yeah, actually I probably need to work on my pacing a little bit better. So again, I'll, yeah. I'll send you. I'll send you the link to the, the particular calculator that I push people towards. Yeah, I love that. I've used that as well. What's your favorite piece of gear or equipment? Uh, I think you know. I think it's resi- those resistance bands. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Yeah. Uh, I need to. Um, yeah, I need to. I need to start giving people some sort of. Uh, some sort of affiliate link for commission for for resistance bands. I think uh, I think I'd make a killing. Yeah. <laughs> Do you like the stability ball? Yes, definitely. Definitely, it's um, it's another good piece of kit. Basically, anything which is going to challenge you from a a, a, um, a core point of view, anything that's going to challenge you from a stability point of view, is going to help you train your core. Definitely. And finally, what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? Um, 
it's getting stuff done in the morning before I actually open my emails. And that could be whether it's doing my 30-day challenge routine or whether it is doing a... Um, whether it's, it's getting out for a run or whether it's you know, whatever it is around the house, just not getting sucked into the vacuum that is, um, that is your personal and business emails. So I know that there's far more chance of me getting out for a morning run if I run before I open my laptop than there is if I do it the other way around. Yeah, perfect. Okay, so finally, James, where can people find out more about you? I think there are a lot of ways. So uh, we'll have all those <laughs> links uh, linked up, of course, but... Uh, Give us the best ways, the ones that you would recommend. Um, best place to find me is actually to get involved in our um, Transform Your Running Facebook group. Um, that way, I that's kind of the place that at the moment kind of holds most of my attention online. Um, and the best way to kind of interact back and forth through that, you can also uh, private message me on Facebook. Um, Twitter yeah, is also fantastic. Um, make sure that I check in on there on a regular basis. And uh, yeah, just if, if you need to email me, through the website is the best way to do it definitely perfect and everything will as i said be linked up right thank you again james so much for your time you've been very generous with it and uh we could have gone on for a long time but but i guess that uh, we might have you on for some other time and listeners can send in questions uh, until then about what they wanted to talk about next time and maybe go into some specifics if, if that sounds like a good idea to you sounds very good definitely thank you for having me uh, okay thank you bye All right, I hope that you enjoyed that interview. Be sure to leave feedback on email. My email address is michael at scientifictriathlon.com and that's Michael with a K. Or you can hit me up on Twitter at SciTriat and you'll also find James on Twitter. You'll have all his contact information in the show notes, which will be on thattriathlonshow.com. And as mentioned in the episode, we will have those complete maintenance routines available for you on thattriathlonshow.com on the show notes page. So make sure to check that out. On the next episode, we have another exciting interview coming up. This one will be with Rob Sleemaker of uh, Vasa Trainer, which is Kind of like, um, how should I describe it? A treadmill for swimming, maybe. Maybe that's the right way to describe it. I think Rob will do, do a much better job than me of describing it. But uh, but that is, we, n- we will not just talk about that, uh, the actual equipment, but also some of the general problems with swim training. And for some people, it's not that easy to get into a pool on a regular basis and so on, and what you can do and, and, uh, and how important things like strength training and so on are for swimming as well. And then the episode after that will be with Patrick Kahn, who is a fantastic sport psychologist, and we will talk about uh, having confidence and the importance of confidence in triathlon and how it really is a big part of your performance. So to make sure that you don't miss those episodes coming up, make sure that you hit subscribe. Uh, Folks, if you aren't subscribed already, you will have a lot of other exciting interviews as well coming up in the pipeline that I won't talk about just yet, but you don't want to miss it. So hit subscribe in your podcast player app if you haven't already. Have a fantastic beginning of August. I look forward to talking to you again on Thursday. And until then, keep training smart and keep loving triathlon. Triathlon.